Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to this month's episode of The Mod Pod, where we'll be featuring two more articles from the April issue of Modern Optometry, one from the cornea and anterior segment cover focus, and the other is our healthcare policy column. Let's start with our clinical topic first. Rebecca Bronsdorf, a cornea and contact lens resident and optometrist at Mid-Atlantic Cornea Consultants in York, Pennsylvania, and Sarah Bell, an optometrist at the same location, put together an informative piece on superficial keratectomy. Let's listen as Dr. Bronsdorf reads to us what she and Dr. Bell compiled about this versatile in-office procedure. Superficial keratectomy is a surgical procedure that can be performed in office by a corneal specialist or, in some states, an optometrist to treat a variety of ocular surface and anterior corneal pathologies when medical management is inadequate. Outcomes include improving vision, reducing irregular astigmatism, preventing the progression of scarring, um, improving ocular surface irregularities, and making keratometry measurements better for refraction and possible cataract surgeries. Before scheduling patients for this treatment, it is important to set them up for success by educating them on the procedure, its use in the treatment of concurrent disease, and potential postoperative outcomes. Superficial keratectomy, or SK, involves removing the most anterior layer of the cornea, the epithelial tissue, without disrupting Bowman layer. Commonly, a diamond tip burr is used after epithelium removal to polish Bowman's layer, creating a surface on which hemidesmosomes can better anchor to the basal epithelium. The procedure can be performed at the slit lamp. Patients with severe blepharitis, cholerets, or heavy makeup are best pretreated with eyelid wipes infused with tea tree oil or hyperchlorous acid, preventing possible infection. After the patient's eye has been numbed, in our office we use half a percent tetracaine and 1% lidocaine gel. A lid speculum is used to keep the eyelids open and reduce contamination of the ocular surface. Next, the condition being treated will determine the steps taken in the procedure next. Below are some common conditions for which SK is indicated, distinguishing differences in each condition's protocols. First, we have anterior basement membrane dystrophy. This is the most common corneal dystrophy and also known as ABMD. It is an autosomal dominant condition that affects two to 3% of the population. ABMD is characterized by irregular thickening of the basement membrane and subsequent hemidesmosome damage, leading to an irregular anterior corneal surface with microscopic elevations and depressions. ABMD is associated with recurrent corneal erosions, or RCEs, in 19 to 29% of patients. The most common cause of an RCE is a history of trauma that mechanically abrades the corneal epithelial tissue in around 50% of people. In our clinic, severe dry eye and nocturnal exposure are under-recognized triggers of RCEs. The weakened epithelial basement membrane adhesions allow for the epithelial tissue to be easily debrided during SK with a sterile sponge or cotton tip applicator. We also can do this procedure for Salzman's nodules. 
which are elevated gray or whitish lesions that overlie a damaged area of Bowman's layer. They occur primarily in the mid-peripheral and peripheral corneal tissues, often with adjacent lactoferrin deposition, indicating chronic inflammation. They may be caused by prolonged ocular surface disease, result from mechanical friction, contact lens wear, or previous surgeries. For removal of a Salzman's nodules, a diamond-dusted jeweler forceps are used to dissect down to Bowman's layer adjacent to the nodule. Dissection is then carried across the Bowman layer to find a plane under the nodule and peel it off the corneal surface. Clinicians should avoid dissecting directly down through the nodule or sharp dissection with a blade because it's easy to pass through Bowman's layer into stroma and remove too much tissue. Poor technique can result in excessive corneal thinning and scarring. Another reason to perform SK is for band keratopathy, which is a chronic degeneration of the corneal tissues characterized by whitish-gray opacities formed from calcium deposits in the subepithelium Bowman's layer and the most anterior layer of the stroma. These deposits are mostly found in the intrapapillary zone, growing from the periphery to the central cornea. To treat band keratopathy, a Wexel sponge or diamond tip burr can be used to gently debride the overlying loose epithelium. Calcium removal is facilitated by continuously placing fresh EDTA on the surface to chelate with the calcium and remove it from the epithelium. Occasionally, patients may have corneal scarring that would benefit from gentle diamond tip burr polishing at this time. Once the cornea is clear, after all these different ways to perform the procedure, a bandage contact lens is placed and the patient is prescribed post-operative antibiotics and NSAIDs. An NSAID is used in the first five days to decrease surface inflammation that is upregulated by MMP9, a substrate activated during corneal wound healing. Topical NSAIDs are also effective at controlling post-operative pain, eliminating the need to prescribe oral narcotics. For protection against infection, a broad-spectrum antibiotic drop is administered four times daily for two weeks. Postoperatively, regardless of the underlying condition, the patient will wear a bandaged contact lens for two weeks to allow for a complete healing of the epithelium and for hemidesmosome attachments to form in the final phase of epithelial wound healing. During corneal healing, migration of squamous and wing cells may take up to 24 to 48 hours to create an intact corneal surface, but tight junctions and hemidesmosome attachments may take four to six weeks. Most patients will be healed at two weeks and should continue artificial tears four times daily for another two to four weeks to ensure healing is complete. After the lens is removed, they will start on the artificial tears. Patients with more severe ocular surface diseases may require serial bandage contact lens wear for six to eight weeks following to allow for complete healing. There are a few complications following SK, making it a relatively safe minor surgical procedure. One common complication is a poorly fitting bandage contact lens. A tight or excessively loose contact may cause redness, tearing, pain, and photophobia, either from oxygen deprivation in a tight lens or an unstable surface for re-epithelialization in a loose lens. This may be difficult to differentiate from the normal post-operative symptoms a patient would complain about. The contact lens may fit differently during the healing period as well, as the conjunctival tissue fluctuates with varying amounts of inflammation and chemosis. Empirically over time, we have found that a bandaged contact lens with a base curve of 8.5 millimeters or 8.6 millimeters is a good starting point and rarely causes a tight contact lens syndrome or a loose contact lens syndrome. 
A more serious but less common complication is a corneal infiltrate or ulcer formation. If this occurs, the lesion should be cultured and treated aggressively with antibiotics with broad-spectrum coverage, including fortified antibiotics. Monocular patients or those who may not be able to properly voice postoperative concerns should be examined every few days until healed to rule out the presence of a corneal infiltrate or ulcer during that two-week healing process. Underlying disease may complicate epithelial healing. In our experience, delayed wound healing may result in patients with a history of herpetic eye disease, limbal stem cell deficiency, or endothelial dystrophies. It is important that these patients are educated on the potential for prolonged healing times up to several months and exacerbation of their underlying disease. Patient education is our primary responsibility, and we must discuss with patients the steps of SK to prepare them for what's coming and to build trust between all parties involved. Many patients mistakenly believe SK to be an extremely painful procedure, which can delay their care, and proper reassurance is important in allaying patient anxiety. Patients need to be aware of the two-week postoperative healing time as they will experience blurry vision and mild discomfort following SK. Some patients may require an updated spectacle prescription after this procedure, and they should know this beforehand. Superficial keratectomy is not a curative treatment, and patients must understand that they may need retreatment in the future. Although SK is an effective treatment to improve vision and comfort of the eye, treatment efficacy is dependent on the condition, severity, and health of the ocular surface. We can reduce post-operative complications by pre-treating any underlying ocular surface disease, and that helps us avoid delayed healing times, infections, anterior stromal haze, and ultimately recurrence of the condition being treated. Stabilizing the ocular surface prior to SK with treatments such as punctal plugs, intense pulse light therapy, a short course of low-dose doxycycline, or lid hygiene regimens will improve short and long-term outcomes of this procedure. All in all, when topical and medical treatments are not able to control the signs and symptoms of anterior basement membrane dystrophies, recurrent corneal erosions, band keratopathy, or Salzman nodules, it is important to make a timely referral for superficial keratectomy. Prepare your patient by educating them on the steps of the procedure, treat their ocular surface disease to maximize outcomes and manage their expectations for the postoperative period. Be prepared to treat any complications that may arise, including tight contact lens syndrome and sight-threatening ulcers. Overall, superficial keratectomy can play a vital role in your patient's care. The main takeaways here, patient education, prompt referral, and careful co-management are keys to success with superficial keratectomy. We'll be back with the next article after this brief message. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. It's another short episode, and next up is also the last segment, but it's sure to hold your interest. Lori Latowski-Grover, Director of the Center for Eye and Health Outcomes and Visiting Scientist at Southern College of Optometry in Memphis, Tennessee, and also Trustee of the American Optometric Association, authored an article on telemedicine principles and practices with Easy Aniyama, 
a third-year student at the University of Houston College of Optometry and president of the American Optometric Student Association. Here's Dr. Grover with telemedicine considerations for doctors, patients, and the profession. Telehealth has emerged as a rapidly evolving tool with a multitude of capabilities in the delivery of health care. Both established and newer doctors of optometry must remain diligent in recognizing the contemporary patient health and safety influences, the technological advancements, and the policies involving the applications and the use of telemedicine that can support our patients, us as doctors, and our profession. I'd like to explain why it's important for us to remain diligent and how we can do so. So for a little bit of background, in October 2020, the American Optometric Association issued a revised position statement regarding telemedicine and optometry and its important uh, use as a resource for supporting doctors of optometry and our related stakeholders in the appropriate use of telemedicine to access the high value and high quality eye health and vision care that we provide. This statement was developed by leaders in eye health and vision care, artificial intelligence from telehealth platforms and practicing physicians. And it features a really great glossary of useful definitions for terms such as telehealth, telemedicine and telemedicine and optometry. Telehealth and its technology are poised to truly revolutionize eye and healthcare. Some have even declared it a natural evolution into the digital age. Not only could the effects of telehealth transform patient care delivery as we now know it, but telehealth also holds promise for improving the lives of our patients who can experience uh, specific barriers to proper treatment and services. So companies, researchers, and healthcare providers continue to investigate ways in which telehealth technology can be applied to help us all achieve positive health outcomes that we expect. So to achieve these desired outcomes, there are important criteria that must be met to ensure that telemedicine in optometry can meet the existing standard of care that we provide, that it's of high quality, that it contributes to care coordination, that it protects and promotes the doctor-patient relationship, it complies with state licensure and other legal requirements, that it maintains patient choice and transparency, and importantly can protect patient privacy. We require strong evidence to show these criteria are being met because the evidence is essential. And keeping these references and helpful language that the policy provides in mind, I'd like to review several key optometric care delivery factors and patient-centered concerns involving telemedicine and optometric care. When we take a look at the expansive healthcare landscape of telemedicine principles, practices, and other professional guidance to support its utility and its effectiveness, it's easy to become overwhelmed in recognizing the variety and the strength of support in existing recommendations. So to assist us as busy clinicians in further translating telemedicine into day-to-day -day practice, 
the AOA streamlined key considerations for delivery of high-quality patient care into three areas. We can talk about those areas impacting patients, factors impacting providers, and those impacting the profession. So one of the most referenced issues across these three areas regarding telemedicine involves the concept of accessing care. So if we go back to my last article, Vision Screening and U.S. Population Health Part 2, What You Need to Know, published in Modern Optometry, an understanding of the multitude of factors affecting healthcare access and utilization is really important. And we can think of this in public health terms as the five A's of access. The value of this knowledge is that it enhances our daily delivery of quality eye and health care and ultimately overall health. So when one sees the term access to health care being used from any one perspective, you can quickly discern the context in which access is being referenced, how access is being utilized, how to recognize whether access is properly defined, which is really key, and you can identify related factors that may require clarification. So in short, understanding how the world views access and how public health views access and utilization of healthcare, it can allow you to ask the proper questions for informing high-quality healthcare-related decisions. In addition, it's not uncommon for patients to encounter roadblocks to telehealth services. Limited access to technology and inadequate use or lack of network connection and lack of individual familiarity with technology remain significant barriers to all healthcare. So these disparities are more prevalent in rural populations, older adults, from those in lower socioeconomic status, or with health literacy, racial, ethnic minorities, and non-native English speakers. So ongoing assessment of the efficacy of telehealth services aiming to alleviate healthcare disparities is needed, as well as strong evidence generated by those of us that study telehealth use and others in the health services research world. And that can be used to further inform policies, utilization, and applications that truly do improve health equity. So let's look at an example. It's important to educate patients and help families and caregivers recognize that access to care differs from standard of care. The AOA states that the standard of care for eye health and vision services must remain the same regardless of whether services are provided in person, remotely via telehealth, or through any combination thereof. Another example involves incorporating patient preferences and ensuring that patient autonomy exists so that patient consent to receive telemedicine and optometry can be understood and they clearly understand their right to choose at any point in the care continuum in-person eye, health, and vision services provided by a doctor of optometry. So if patients and their doctors do not fully grasp limitations of the specific care delivery methods and trade-offs that can occur between them, then patients are not fully informed 
and all of our stakeholders, including our patients, are unable to share in making the best decisions for their own healthcare needs. So maintaining a standard of care is truly essential to achieving acknowledged health outcomes that we associate with contemporary, comprehensive, optometric eye care. The AOA states that use of direct-to-patient eye and vision health-related applications, which includes online vision tests and other mobile eye and vision-related applications, does not constitute telemedicine and optometry unless used under the direction of a doctor of optometry. This position is important because it reinforces the key role that doctors of optometry have as the patient's physician supervisor and the appropriate knowledgeable professional directing the patient's eye and vision care. It also builds patient confidence in the delivery and coordination of that care as an integral part of their healthcare team. Ultimately, the outcome is strengthened patient experience and ultimate improved patient health outcomes. Maintaining required legal and administrative patient-related issues is also of concern. It is critical to meet patient privacy and confidentiality standards. So photographs obtained by patients or stakeholders outside of a clinical setting may not meet these quality standards or contain enough information to accurately evaluate patients' eye and visual system and health status. Another example involves risk assessments and potential outcomes of using technology to screen for certain eye health issues to replicate or replace a dilated eye exam based on tech uses and limitations. Telehealth diagnostics or telediagnosis in eye care is a timely example of an emerging field that requires diligent exploration and methodical evaluation by health services researchers and other clinical investigators to ensure quality care and its equitable delivery. Because telediagnosis differentially affects the steps in the diagnostic process, careful consideration must be given to how these steps are ultimately redefined. Clinicians are also faced with the challenges created by rapid evolution of the field because new tools and systems are constantly being introduced. However, maintaining a needed focus on key factors, such as access, which we previously discussed, patient engagement, and follow-up can truly strengthen the foundation for a desirable, iterative, and practice-driven approach. These considerations are of utmost importance for all emerging technologies to ensure that telehealth systems can truly demonstrate health equity and reduce health disparities. As far as the role of the physician regarding standard of care, the AOA states that doctors may not waive the obligation or require patients to waive their right to receive standard of care. Let's talk about a few considerations that demonstrate the challenges and obligations doctors face on a daily basis in meeting this fundamental objective. One of our key roles as physicians involves successfully helping patients staff, and other stakeholders fully understand the selective nature and differences in care delivery, patient populations, and those targeted by available technologies. 
So doctors of optometry have a long history of quickly and efficiently adopting emerging technology. The current landscape requires this continued embrace of technology, but in a way that really supports and enhances the optometrist's clinical decision-making and is in the best interest of patient care. Evolving technologies will continue to provide new ways of gathering health-related data, but they cannot replace optometric expertise in evaluating it. Technology alone cannot fully predetermine what next clinical care options are, especially from a primary care standpoint. Available technologies cannot yet predetermine important considerations like patient preferences or weigh cost benefits or incorporate all the available evidence we use to support optimum patient-centered care. For example, just as industry recognizes, available remote technology does not yet support the detection of all possible systemic and ocular conditions to arrive at important clinical findings where you as the doctor and the patient can discuss how to achieve those desired optimum health outcomes. Conversely, another important consideration involves the risk of fearing technology or misusing it when one is not fully informed of capabilities within the telemedicine landscape. There's a lot of anxiety that can be created when eye and vision-related tech is used in the primary healthcare setting and other professional settings outside of optometry. Doctors face complexity in reimbursement issues for telemedicine, regulatory and scope issues like practicing across state lines, and in attempts to reach all the patient populations that require our equitable optometric care, especially when we're addressing geographic and other healthcare access-related challenges, as discussed earlier. There are also many outside influences to consider that affect our profession as a whole and the care that we provide as doctors of optometry. As for standard of care, the AOA position statement indicates that a payer may not require either the doctor or patient waive the right to receive that standard of care. Decades of optometric advocacy have gone into the continued elevation of legislation, policy, reimbursement, and the value of care provided by doctors of optometry. The position statement also points to criteria that ensure high-quality telemedicine and presents considerations for professional organization, training, and implementation of telemedicine. This important advocacy further highlights the significance of the doctor-patient relationship and the unique role our profession plays in improving the nation's health, literally one patient at a time. It acknowledges the unknowns and the existing gaps in our knowledge of telemedicine, and these include a need for data to better understand potential positive and negative health outcomes resulting from promoted telemedicine and technology applications. One key consideration facing all of healthcare involves what I like to call the horse and cart analogy. Will doctors allow technology to over-influence the direction of the professional care we deliver? In other words, put the cart before the horse. Or will we continue to drive patient care by embracing technology that works while avoiding approaches to care that are not shown to be beneficial? 
For example, during the pandemic, there was a disparate use of telemedicine across specialties, and this ranged from 68% of endocrinologists to only 9% of ophthalmologists. The potential for telemedicine to help reduce health disparities does exist, yet there is a lack of evidence to support those best approaches to achieving health equity within the national landscape. Another consideration involves evidence of bias in artificial intelligence and retinal machine learning models. Additional evidence supports the adoption of many telemedicine procedures, including video conferencing, providing tertiary care in the form of rehabilitative therapy, capturing images, and managing prescribed treatment refills. However, limitations in telemedicine functionality for full-scope diagnosis and treatment from a primary care population health perspective still exist. As an example, there are generational differences within technology and preferences for convenience, speed, and remote engagement. So exactly how these choices will affect future professional care delivery, professional training, and the long-term health of the public are not yet fully understood. Ultimately, it remains in our hands, in the hands of every optometrist and others who recognize the value of optometric eye care to preserve, protect, and promote the doctor-patient relationship that is so fundamental and essential to health. Vigilance is required for the successful navigation of our changing telemedicine environment and the adoption of evolving care delivery choices. Could telehealth and its technology be poised to revolutionize eye and healthcare? Some have declared it a natural evolution into the digital age. What are your thoughts? Email us at modernod at bmctoday.com. Feel free to use that address to send us any other feedback you have. Seriously, we love hearing from you. We'll be back in a month with a new episode, so stay tuned. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening.